We are officially in Ephesians chapter 3 today. Um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll go back down and uh, break it down. We'll ba go back and break it down. Can't even talk. Okay, Ephesians 3 says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which wasn't made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So primarily this morning, we're focusing on the mystery of God that apparently was kept back not just from men in other generations, all of humanity, but also the spiritual realm was unaware. Like any, any being that existed apart from God, anyone else uh, was not in on the mystery that God revealed in Christ Jesus. So the mystery is that Gentiles are included into the body of Christ. The family of Yahweh. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. And to me... Even though on the very least of all the saints, this grace was still given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this... This was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then Paul's going to transition chapter 4, 5, and 6. is going to be the practical application of the theology in the first three chapters. Okay, So chapter 1 through 3 is all about the theology, the who God is, and what's happened because of Christ, and how it translates into our life. That's going to be chapter 4 through 6. Chapters 4 through 6. So let's back it up to chapter 3, verse 1. And today what we are addressing is why God kept back this mystery from humanity and from angels and from all spiritual beings. Why did God keep this mystery to himself until the appropriate time? That's what we're going to unpack this morning. So let's go to verse 1. It says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles. What an interesting way to frame up his imprisonment. So Paul, writing this from prison, says, I want you to know I'm a prisoner of Christ, like I belong to him, um, and I serve him, and I, uh, he's my king, 
and I am a prisoner of him for your good on behalf of you Gentiles. Let me make sure I... Let me pull something up real quick. I could be wrong. Paul might not have been imprisoned during Ephesians. Uh, Paul imprisoned when he wrote Ephesians. I really mix up these books. According to tradition, Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians while he was in Rome in prison. Okay, let me find a more reliable source. I don't like that. Yeah, okay, he is in prison. Just making sure. Because he doesn't have to necessarily be in prison to be a, a bondservant of Christ. That's his position wherever he goes. Whether he's in actual prison or he's just living life free. He's a, he's a bondservant of Christ. So, what Paul notes here is that he's a prisoner of Christ for the good of the Gentiles. He's going to explain what that means. He goes, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace. Stewardship refers to management. It's when you entrust something to someone for them to manage faithfully. Paul is apparently stewarding, managing God's grace that was given to him actually for the church. He was going, look, I'm a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you guys for your good, right? And uh, assuming that you've actually heard of how God's grace was entrusted to me to manage for your good, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly, and now he's going to go into the mystery and what that even looks like, okay? So verse 3, the mystery was made known to Paul by revelation. Let me take you to Galatians chapter 1. Technically, the revelation Paul's referring to uh, could be on the road to Damascus when he is brought to his knees and he's blinded. And he realizes this Jesus, whom he's been persecuting through his people, really is the king of the Jews. Um, but I think it's actually the entrusting and the education of the gospel. When Paul is actually educated in the gospel by Christ himself. This is what Paul says in Galatians 1.15. It says, when he, referring to God, when God who set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, when he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with anyone. So the revelation Paul is most concerned with is the revelation of Christ to him that God has brought. Now this could have happened, uh, he could have Damascus in mind, but I think it goes beyond just that incident in Damascus. I think this is the progressive revelation of Jesus to Paul. Now, in that, if you bring it back to Acts, uh, I forget where Paul accounts this. I'm doing all this Googling. When did Paul encounter Jesus on Damascus? Um, ba -ba -ba -ba. Acts chapter 9. Let's go to Acts chapter 9. Let's read this. Paul, going on his way, he's going to Damascus, right? He's on the way there uh, to ruin the, the, the Christian community there and to bring them into prison and to bring the decree from Jerusalem that were to bind these people up. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus. This is Jesus revealing himself to Paul. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. So that 
moment on the road to Damascus, Paul encounters Jesus himself, the revelation of Jesus. Now, the details surrounding Jesus and what he's accomplished and, and what he's come to do for the world, now that gets progressively revealed to Paul, you know, in the coming weeks, months, and years. So this revelation that Paul is referring to is centrally focused around Jesus. In other words, the mystery, as you're going to see, Colossians will tell us, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory, okay? But here, let's go on. The mystery was made known to Paul by revelation, as he's talked about briefly, okay? So in chapter 2 and chapter 1, Paul's already briefly, not fully, but, you know, subtly touched on what the mystery is. And he spent a lot of chapter 2 going through how Gentiles and Jews actually come into the same body and are made a new creation. And no matter where you stand on the spectrum, okay, wherever you are geographically, what your race is, your gender, your age, no matter where, where you find yourself in human history, anyone can become a new creation in Christ, the new humanity, the family of God. He's talked about that. And verse 4, he says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Okay, so he's going, I have some insight and understanding into this mystery that I really want you to understand. And this mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit now. So when we talk about progressive revelation, when we talk about how God unfolds his story over time and throughout history, we have to understand that what we know of Christ now, how we understand the church, how we understand the way God relates to humanity, that in its entirety at one point wasn't fully revealed to humanity the way it is now. Okay, and Paul's going, God chose to reveal this to me. He chose to reveal his son to me. Whereas, you know, you look back in history before Christ, the revelation of Jew and Gentile, one body, a part of the same family of God. Now, that wasn't clear. That wasn't revealed to humanity or the spiritual realm the way it is now. And you're going to see why I bring in the spiritual, because Paul's going to talk about, I think elsewhere he says, this wasn't, uh, where is it? Angels longed to look into this mystery. A Bible verse. 1 Peter 1.12. So Peter compliments what Paul's saying. You guys like my avatar mug? Some of you are going to throw stones at me. Others of you are going to applaud me. Others of you do not care. 1 Peter chapter 1. It says, um, referring to the prophets, that they were inquiring what person or time the, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. Uh, let me just take you to 1 Peter. I'm all over the place this morning. Forgive me, it's a Monday morning. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. This is Peter talking, referring to the past prophets who stood, you know, as the mouthpiece of God to the people. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news by the Spirit sent from heaven, Things into which angels long to look, or longed to look. Um, mystery was hidden from angels. That wasn't necessarily the verse I was thinking of. Maybe I'm combining different verses in my head. Um, let's go to Colossians chapter 1. 
I'm trying to show you the mystery Paul's touching on now. It's ridiculous. It's it, not ridiculous in that in like it's unbelievable, but it's crazy how we have such a beautiful revealed uh, gospel. Whereas at one point in human history, you didn't know this stuff. This was this was hidden. Okay, that, that's what I want you to understand. What we have now in Christ, what we know that we take for granted and let sit on the shelf, that was once hidden. And prophets, uh, kings, apparently angels, longed to look into these things and know them. Okay, Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, referring to the mystery, it was, it was hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So, I think when you go back to 1 Peter and it talks about how the angels longed to look into this mystery, there's an aspect of God's plan that wasn't even known to you know, the angels who serve in his throne, who serve in, in, in the Holy of Holies, who serve in the presence of God, who've been there for you know, God knows how long. They didn't know what was revealed fully in Christ. Um, and then Ephesians chapter 1, actually, I think it's 1 Corinthians. I'm going all over the place. Work with me. Um, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Even the demonic, like the, the realm of darkness, was completely unaware of what God was doing through his son to reconcile humanity. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8 says, Look, if the rulers of this world had understood it, they wouldn't have crucified our Lord. They wouldn't have crucified him. They wouldn't have played right into the hand of God and brought, you know, allowed Jesus to bring salvation by him being crucified and dying for sin. He played right into, or the devil played right into um, the hand of God. It's wonderful. Uh, hold on one sec. Let me go offline. Let's turn that on. And we're back. Okay, cool. So when we go back to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says, when you read about, you know, chapter 2, everything he said, you can see my insight into the mystery of Christ, which wasn't made known to the sons of men. Colossians says was, was hidden from humanity. You know, First uh, Peter says angels long to look into the mystery in other generations, but now it's been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And Paul's saying, I'm one of those apostles. I'm one of those capital A um, individuals who get to see the risen Savior and be commissioned to build the church and lay the foundation. I'm one of those guys. This mystery, okay, this is as clear as you can get when people go, what's the mystery? Pretty explicit. The mystery is that the Gentiles, non-Jews, are fellow heirs. Not fellow citizens alone. Not people who just belong to the same kingdom. You actually, as a non-Jew who believes in Christ, you have the same inheritance that a believing Jew has in Christ. Okay? So as, you know, believers, we have access to the inheritance of Jesus that he's made available to us. He's made it available through his death and resurrection. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, I forget where it says that all of his promises are yes in Christ. I think it's Revelation, 2 Corinthians 1.20. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. In other words, any promise given from God to humanity finds its substance and its fulfillment in Jesus. Any promise. There's no completion of the promise to Abraham without Jesus. 
there's no completion of the promise to David without Jesus. There's no completion of the promise to, to, to Joseph, to Moses, to Elijah, to Solomon, to Samuel without Jesus. He's the substance. Okay, he's the, he, he's the what brings these promises into completion. So you think about how the, the Israelites, who are physical descendants of Abraham, how they thought they were a part of all the promises given to their forefathers. They thought they were a part of that just because they physically descended from Abraham, who got the promises, right? So here's how the logic works. Look, if, if Yahweh chose Abraham, our forefather, and the promises were given to him, then we get those promises too. And to a degree, they were right. To a degree, not completely. They assumed a lot of the promises that God gave to Abraham would be given to them too, just because they physically descended from Abraham. But that's not true. What matters is that they had the faith of Abraham. Not just that they physically descended. They had the covenant. They had the temple. They had the sacrificial system. They had the priesthood. They had the presence of God among them. They had the law. They had a lot of blessings, okay? Because they physically descended from Abraham. But that physical descent wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. There's actually a, a, a butt ton of promises that were given to the spiritual seed of Abraham, not just the physical seed. And so what Paul is letting us know is, look, as, as non-Jews, y'all who were outside of these promises, you guys who were outside of this body, you guys who had no share in this inheritance, God has brought you in as if you always belonged. As if you always belonged. <laughs> Not as if you're like unnaturally being forced into the family and God's like, look, I look here's, all, here's all that my son has. Just don't break it. Just don't ruin it. You know how like, when you have friends come over of your kids, maybe this hasn't happened to you yet because you don't have kids, or maybe you've been a part of this where you see your parents working like this and you're like, that's kind of awkward, where the parents bring in the friends of their children and they're like, ah, please don't break my children's things. You're welcome to enjoy what I have in this house, but like there, there's clearly a, like a sense of you don't, you're not my family. You're not my children. You don't have the degree of access that my kids have. Like, I'm going to let you in the house, but don't be expecting me to treat you like my own kid. And I think some believers think that's how God brings us into his family. It's like, look, you belong, but God doesn't really, really let you belong as much as you could. Like, he doesn't let you belong as much as, you know, these people. That's a lie. That's a huge deception in the church. Whereas Paul goes, look, you're fellow heirs. Everything Christ has his inheritance is fully yours no stipulations no restrictions it's it's all yours he holds nothing back from his people if you have faith in his son and you take refuge in jesus everything the son has he gives as a gift to everyone who has faith no restrictions god doesn't hold back some and go oh when you're old enough god goes everything my son has is yours but we do have to mature into it, right? There's a degree of as I grow, I experience the more that I've always had access to. So your fellow heirs, you're not these unwelcomed orphans or these stepchildren. You belong. That's the point. As non-Jewish believers, you belong in the family of God as if like to the degree that you've, it's like you've always been there. It's like you've always been there. From the Jewish perspective, in first century Christianity, they're looking at Gentiles coming into the fold and going, ah, 
they don't they haven't always been here though they don't really have as much access as we do 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 they it's not fair we've worked really hard and they're just coming on in they can't have all the access we do and god's going yeah they do everything my son won was not just for the jewish nation those who would have faith in Jesus as Jewish people, but those who would have faith in Jesus as non-Jews. And you become members of the same body as if you always belonged. And you become fellow heirs as if you've always belonged. It's like God never skips a beat. You've always been there. Like you, you belong just as much as the people who've been here centuries before you. Equal belonging, equal value, equal significance, equal partaking of the promise in Christ. Every promise given to the forefathers that Jesus fulfills, you become a part of those promises. Now, let's think about this. Uh, technically, from the unbelieving Jews' perspective, all the promises given to their, their forefathers, was that, that, that was only for the physical descendants of Abraham. Okay, So they're like, we have all these promises. Non-Jews do not. But then God goes, actually, through faith, the Gentiles can become a part of these promises, too. And you're like, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. Because the Gentiles weren't always here from the beginning like we were. We descended from Abraham. They did not. How did they get to share in these promises? And God was going, oh, that's interesting. I'm glad you asked. Because the promises I made to Abraham, David, Moses, Jacob, Isaac, take your pick. Those promises apply to anyone who has the faith of Abraham. That's what's crazy. You and I go from not belonging, having no share in the kingdom, being strangers without hope, and it, all of a sudden, you have faith. It's like you've always been a part of this kingdom and family. God doesn't treat you any different. There's no degree of like, you got to earn your spot here, bro. You got to learn how we do things. We do grow and mature, but that doesn't increase my sense of belonging. That doesn't increase my value or, you know, my significance in the sight of God. In other words, like, uh, there's this lie that I think a lot of believers think. It's, as I mature, I belong more. The more I look like Jesus, the more I really belong in this family. That's not true. Belonging comes prior to the sanctification. Because I belong, that's what motivates and drives the transformation of the believer. Over time, their life changes to fit more like who God says they are. So you and I, you really need to get this. Like, this is part of your identity. The mystery is this. You go, what, did, what, what is the mystery God chose to hide lovingly and graciously and wisely from angels, from demons, from, from humanity? What is the mystery? Well, it's that non-Jews are just as much a part of the kingdom as believing Jews. And for us, 21st century, it's like, I don't care. This matters so much when it comes to the, the, the Israelite roots in, in, in uh, Christianity and where, where this all comes from. It matters a lot. It's huge for them. So I, I understand that some of you are like, I don't really see the significance. It's huge to be the unique nation of God for centuries. And to see everyone else as not belonging, and then all of a sudden something switches, seemingly overnight through this person, Jesus, who extends the kingdom through his apostles, 
to anyone, Samaritans, Gentiles, the Romans, anyone. This would, this would do, uh, this would rock your world as a first century Israelite to hear this. You'd probably have to go home and process for a few weeks and really pray and go, Ooh, I'm not okay with this. Because I know the history of my people. I know what, I know the difficulty we've gone through, the exiles, the, the God's presence and the miracles and God's hand of discipline on us and the Gentiles didn't have to deal with that. Now all of a sudden they're in just like they've always been here. That's not fair. And God's going, Ooh, you want to talk fair? We can talk fair. My grace isn't based on what's fair. God gives us the good we don't deserve. Not the good we do. So we're all equally undeserving of his grace. That's what makes this so beautiful. The mystery that we're fellow heirs. Now, let's go on. Of, of this gospel, good news. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Now, Paul's already mentioned the gift of God's grace. If you go back to verse 2, he says, I'm pretty sure you guys have heard of how God has entrusted his grace to me for you. Like, um, when I give something to my son to manage, like, I don't know, some toy or some amount of money, and I go, hey, take care of this, put this there. That's, that's the idea here is that... You, Paul has been given a gift by God to manage, not to keep, not to dig up in the ground and hide until he comes back. But the gift is God's grace. And then there's a, there's a, there's a purpose attached to that gift. God doesn't entrust things in vain. He doesn't assign you know, responsibilities for, with no purpose. He, there's a purpose attached to it. Okay, So when God gives Paul the grace to preach the gospel it's as if the lord is saying hey paul here's the gift of my grace to to preach and understand this mystery go and steward it well for the benefit of the church and now we get to verse 7 he's going i was made a minister according to the gift of god's grace okay there's two things going on with the grace of god here the grace of God is both the gift, Paul's managing, and God's grace is the driving force that empowers Paul to manage that grace well. Do you see how grace is written all over the life of a believer? Paul's going, the only reason God graced or, or chose to save me and make me an apostle and love me is because God is gracious. And you know what God did to demonstrate his grace to me besides sending his son to, to rescue humanity? Well, God gave me a gift called his grace. What was the grace? Well, it was the ability and the responsibility to manage and preach and understand the gospel. And also, God's grace is what enables me to do that. So from beginning to end and everything in between, Paul has God's grace written all over him. Not just the calling. God doesn't just give a calling out of his grace. He empowers the calling by his grace. And God doesn't just save Paul by his grace. He entrusts Paul with that saving message to manage it well as a gift of God's grace. 
In other words, Paul goes, wow, I have the ability and the understanding to preach the gospel. He sees that as a gift of God's grace, not as a burden. Like, I got to talk to my coworkers about Jesus. Will I go to heaven if I don't? Like, Paul doesn't think like that. He's going, this is a gift of God's grace to have the favor to deliver and understand the gospel and to be included in this. This is a gift of his grace. And it was given to Paul, verse 7, by the working of his power. Remember the power we saw in chapter 1? I'll save this for the Friday workshops when we actually unpack power. But for now, in chapter 1, Paul talks about how God's power was demonstrated through the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. That was a grand demonstration of God's power when Christ conquered death, sin, and the devil in our place. Now Paul's going, that same power is working in my life to be a minister of God's grace. It's like Paul is Oprah. You get grace, you get grace, you get grace. He's called to dispense the grace of God. Not to keep it, not to hoard it and lock it, lock it up in a, in a you know, little treasure box on his bookshelf. He's called to dispense that grace. So apparently, faithfulness is not about what do I hoard. Faithfulness is about what do I give if what you know about God leads to inactivity and laziness and complacency, if knowledge of God leads you to be inactive and sitting on the sidelines, you're not faithfully managing what God has entrusted for you to you to go out and dispense to people and apply and use. So the working of, think about this, the very power that resurrected Christ and seated him above all spiritual authority, that same force, and I'm using that term on purpose, don't get all new agey on me, just, let's just detach the power for a minute from God himself, that power that is sourced in God is driving your life. Like it's actually behind your actions and activities that you do for God. So when God calls you, and don't think this is just for Paul. Oh, good thing I'm not entrusted with God's grace. Whew, that'd be a responsibility. Oh, you are, Nancy. You really are. You're entrusted with God's grace to go and dispense whatever level of knowledge and understanding you have. Go and share that. It doesn't have to be preaching in a pulpit or on a street corner. It doesn't even have to be just to your coworkers. Whoever God calls you to, you're to entrust that grace and knowledge to other people to manage. And if they don't, that's on them. You can't make them. But do you see the chain effect of discipleship? It's I inherited grace, and I'm going to go and dispense that to others so that they can share with other people. So verse 8, to me, even though I'm the very least of all the saints. Is Paul... Uh, I don't know, having like a fake humility here and trying to get us to think he's humble when he's not. No. No. To me, though, I'm the very least of all the saints. He really means it. He says, I, like he, this is what we talked about the last time in chapter two. 
there is a balance, okay, between remembering what I was without Christ and walking in who I am now. Paul's not letting his past cripple him in his present. He's not sitting in his past and doing nothing. I'm the least of all the saints. I persecuted my own brothers and sisters. I locked them up. I condemned some of them to death. I'm the worst. He doesn't live there. But that does inform how he lives his life to a degree. Meaning, who Paul used to be is something that Paul recalls periodically to stay humble. Not to get depressed and feel condemned and ashamed. But there is, we often are like, forget the past. There's a degree to which your past is actually helpful in your present. Not fully, not every aspect, not completely. But Paul is saying, I'm the least of all the saints. He knows what he was without Christ. And that actually motivates him to have such love and compassion and passion for other people. And Paul will actually say, look, my life is a demonstration that God can and is willing to save anyone. If God saved a murderer, someone who persecuted Christians, someone who went around hunting down believers, this is not Paul just looking out his window going, Ugh, Christians. This is Paul leaving his house, going into other cities, looking for believers to throw into prison and condemn to death. God saved that man, pulled him out of darkness, and brought him into the light. And Paul's going, I really am the least. Like in his mind, he goes, I am not deserving of the grace and love God has shown me. In fact, let me take it this far. I am the least deserving when it comes to everyone in the church. I'm the least deserving. Now, that's not condemnation or shame. That's a proper view of oneself in light of God's grace, right? There's a way that we need to hold ourselves up against the grace of God and go, I want to see me and who I used to be against the backdrop of God's love and grace so that I am kept humble and I don't grow prideful and I don't grow arrogant. And I've always been here and egotistical and judgmental. Humility guards from that. And I think what keeps us humble is a periodical reminder of how undeserving we are of all that God's given us. So he goes, even though I am the least of all the saints, okay, now let's think about this. God still gave me this grace to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, I was thinking through this earlier. This is why the book of Ephesians is easily my favorite book of the Bible. Because the unsearchable riches of Jesus is just at the center of this whole book. The unsearchable, like infinite, incomprehensible riches of Christ. That's, that's leaking off the pages of Ephesians. And Paul's going, I'm the least deserving of this grace. And yet, like despite that, Paul's going, despite what I'm worthy of or unworthy of, God chose to grace me with the calling to preach the riches of Christ to the world. 
Now, I want you to think about that. How could God demonstrate just how deep and, and wide His grace is? How could God demonstrate the unfathomable depth of His riches and His kindness and love? What would be a way to do that? What if God took a guy who was persecuting God's children and throwing them in prison and condemning to death? What if God encountered that man on the road to Damascus, brought him to his knees, showed him his glory so that the man was changed forever? And what if God used that man to be one of the main uh, generals in God's army leading the charge and building the church in the world? What if God chose to make one of his greatest weapons uh, one of his greatest enemies at first? Like what if God said, hey, look at one of my greatest enemies, the, one of the people who hate me the most. I'm going to make a weapon of righteousness out of him and redeem him. And then I'm going to use him to preach the riches of my grace because he's actually encountered it. Like, who would be more fitting to preach the riches of God's grace? Who would be more fitting for that job than Paul? who has actually encountered that grace in a way that so many of us are just unaware of. Like, I'm not saying we haven't encountered that same grace. I'm saying I don't know if we're as aware of that grace as Paul was. I don't know if I'm as thankful and as humbled by the grace of God as Paul was. But again, what a weapon that would be made out of that, you know, enemy of God. That, that would make for a force to be reckoned with. A man who goes, I know what I used to do, and you saved me anyway. And then you go and tell people about that grace. That's a powerful force, man. And Paul's going, I was called to preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus to the Gentiles. The main audience that Paul was sent to was the Gentiles. Doesn't mean it didn't include Jews, because Paul would often go to the Jews first in whatever city he was going to, go to the synagogue. And then once they'd kick him out or be done and get like, let's kill him, he'd go, okay, I'll go to the Gentiles. So Paul's main responsibility was to deliver these riches to the Gentiles. I wonder if, if we framed up evangelism like that, I wonder how many people would actually be motivated to do it. Like, if you just tell people, go tell people Jesus loves them, it's like, eh, what if I say, what if I said, go tell people about the unsearchable riches Jesus has waiting for them? Go tell people that the king has brought the terms of peace. Go tell people that there's this unfathomable love that you can't fully understand or know this side of heaven, and God is inviting you into that. What if that was the way we framed up preaching the gospel? I think a lot more people would be motivated. But then again, the human heart does get in the way. So I would say, Paul is passionate and he's a faithful servant because he understands how unworthy he is. If I don't keep that in my peripherals, how unworthy I really am of what God has done for me. If I don't remind myself of that periodically, again, 
you grow hum uh, prideful, arrogant, stale, cold, and inactive. And, and you lose the zeal and passion you once had when you realize how unworthy you are of what God has done for you. So the riches of Christ here are what Paul is preaching as the least of all the saints. And he goes, and I was called to bring to light or reveal for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. So think about this. Hidden for ages in God. For those of you that go, how do we know angels and spiritual beings were not aware of this mystery? How do we know God didn't share it? Because it was hidden in God himself. Like this mystery was kept back, concealed, covered up until the right time. And God didn't share it with a select few. It was hidden in God himself. That's why when Jesus comes and does what he does and the day of Pentecost happens and the church happens, that that was just a curveball to everyone except God. That was not at all a part of the script. And that was not at all coming. Except God saw that. Everyone else didn't. So this plan, this mystery, which was hidden in God, God revealed that mystery to Paul and said, Hey, Jew, Gentile, one body in my son through his death and resurrection. Now, Paul it doesn't just become aware of that mystery. God goes, Hey, remember how I shared that mystery with you? I'm entrusting this mission to you, okay? Go and share that mystery and reveal it to everyone you can, just like I revealed it to you. Okay. Go and reveal this mystery. Uncover it. Okay. Make it known to people the way I've made it known to you. You see the passing on of, of the torch, you might say. God goes, I revealed it to you. Now you go be faithful. Be responsible. I'm with you. I'm driving it. I'm doing the work. But go do it. Okay. Now look at how he describes God. This is very interesting. He says, I'm called to bring to light for everyone the plan of God's mystery, which was hidden, concealed in God himself for ages, who created all things. Okay? God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the multifaceted, multidimensional wisdom of God, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Hands down, one of the coolest things you'll ever read in Ephesians. And I really mean that. This plan, now I, I got to break this down for you because this, I can't miss a beat here. I got to really stick with this. Okay. The plan God always had from the beginning of time to redeem humanity was that through his son's death and resurrection, any person, Jew, non-Jew, could be made new humanity, recreated in Jesus through their faith. That was always the plan. That was not at all revealed to humanity. There were dimensions of it. There were glimpses here and there. But the full picture was never revealed to the angelic beings, to the spiritual beings, to the demonic realm, to, to people. It, was, it wasn't known to anyone except God himself. No other being was aware of this plan okay now god goes i'm going to reveal this through my son accomplish it through jesus then what i'm going to do 
is the people who have faith in my son. Okay, I'm going to redeem them, bring them into my family. This is what God does. And then what I'm going to do is through that collection of people, through that family, the wisdom that I've hidden back and held back from, from everyone, I'm going to display that through the church. You know when you find out about something through someone else? Like uh, you find out your friend doesn't like you. That friend doesn't tell you directly. You just find out from a friend of a friend of the uncle's friend who tells you, hey, your friend doesn't like you. And you go, why would I have to find out like this? Why couldn't he just come and directly tell me that he doesn't like me? That's kind of the idea here. God is not necessarily directly saying, this is how wise I am to the spiritual realm and to all of humanity. He's not doing it in like this clear cut way. What he's doing is he's going, I have decided to reveal that hidden wisdom and communicate it to everything and everyone through the church. Through the church. So now, the church doesn't just become recipients of that wisdom and that grace. They become a grand display of that grace. In other words, let's just take Satan and his demons, wondering, scratching their heads, going, did, did we finish Jesus? Is he gone? And then they see him resurrect, and they go, oh, no, he's not gone. He's back. Yeah, well, let's see what he does, okay? Can't be that bad. Boom, day of Pentecost after Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. Satan and his demons going, oh, good Lord. So now the people here on earth have the Spirit of God in them. Okay, that's great. Um, is this what God was always planning to do? Did we fall into his hand? Did, did he play us like a fiddle? Oh my gosh. When we condemned Jesus to the cross, you know, through the, through the Jews and the Romans, and we manipulated them, we thought we were finishing Jesus. We finished ourselves. We screwed ourselves because Jesus conquered us. Now the people who believe in him conquer us too through faith. We're the dumbest, we're the dumbest beings that are, that are alive. That has to be like the conversation the demons had and, and Satan are going, we screwed ourselves over. That wisdom was not revealed until the church displayed not just the grace of God, but the wisdom of God. There's wisdom in concealing, not just in revealing, okay? Wisdom is not just about how you say things or when you say things. Wisdom is about what you choose not to say and choosing to withhold it at the right time and from the right people. There's wisdom in that kind of thing. God was wise not just in withholding his plan from everyone and everything, okay? God was wise in that he went, hey, Instead of telling Satan to his face that I've conquered him through my son in the church, let's just put it on full display and let them find out when the church goes and wreaks havoc and, you know, plunders hell. Let's just let the apostles go to work. Let's let the church be raised up and grow and let that, let's let the church deliver the message to the realm of darkness that my grace has enabled them to be conquerors of Satan and his demons. Yeah, let's let them do it. That's what God has done through us. We've become his chosen method. And that's pretty humbling. That's empowering, but that's also humbling. Where I go, dang, like me, 
fickle, weak, fragile, in, you know, unreliable, sinful me, a part of the church, we get to display the wisdom of God. Again, not just to the world, not just the grace of God to the world, but to the spiritual realm and specifically the spiritual authorities in heavenly places that are rebellious to Jesus. Principalities, rulers, and authorities. In other words, these governing authoritative dark spirits. Okay? And don't tell me, well, you can tell me, but don't say that no spiritual being in the, in the, of darkness has no authority, has no dominion. They're called principalities and rulers for a reason. They're given a degree of rule and authority over the earth. It seems like Satan shares that rule with his demons and they go and wreak havoc. God is so masterful, guys. It's so crazy. I am so humbled. I don't just know God's plan and God's like, hey, like, here's my plan. And I get to go and watch and just with binoculars and from like really safe at a distance on a cliff going, wow, God, I get to watch you go to work. He goes, no, no, no. I'm choosing you to go and show the world and the entire spiritual realm the wisdom that I've kept hidden. Go and reveal that by living for me, by submitting to the Spirit, by walking in love, by being changed, by knowing me. And it's interesting that Paul describes God as being the one who created all things. For me, that tells me of all the things God has created, which, by the way, is everything that exists, God chose out of all the things he made to display his wisdom and his hidden plan to the world, he chose the church. He chose a bunch of broken, helpless people that said, I need Jesus. And he transformed them into weapons of righteousness, collectively pulled them together so that they're the body of Christ. And now they are the grand display of God's grace and wisdom to the world. But also watch, so that through the church, the wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Why is it that Paul calls out the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? Because these same rulers and authorities who manipulated people to condemn Jesus to the cross, these same rulers and authorities who are unaware of God's master plan and they think they've conquered Jesus when in fact they were played like a fiddle, these same rulers and authorities that Christ conquered through his death and resurrection for us are the same rulers and authorities that now you and I have authority over. Not like, I tell you what to do now, demon, but I'm no longer under their rule. We're no longer manipulated in a sinful way and in, in, in darkness by rulers and authorities. We're now with Christ seated above them. So, again, this brings us all the way back to Genesis 3 when the serpent, that, that spiritual rebel, exercised authority over humanity. Jesus reverses it so that now the tables have turned and in Christ we have authority over the serpent, spiritual beings who are rebels and demons. We have authority over the principalities and rulers and you know, those evil rulers that have dominion in the heavenly places in Christ and we display that. In other words, we are a sign that Satan and his demons are finished. 
we're actually a sign. I'm not the I'm not the way they're finished. I'm not the reason they're finished. But I am a condemning sign against them. Like we as the church, we know, we don't just display the grace of God to save those who believe. Like the spiritual rebels who are anti-God and manipulating entire countries and peoples and communities, we are a sign of condemnation to them that they're finished. We display that aspect of God's wisdom that they simply didn't know. Like if they knew it, they would not have crucified Jesus and manipulated people to put him to death. They wouldn't have done that. Because they screwed themselves over by doing that. And Jesus even talks about how, look, the kingdom of darkness ain't divided. Like they're smart, but they're stupid at the same time. Played right into the hand of God. They didn't know that aspect of God's plan, which left them powerless through the cross. They didn't know it. And now guess what? Y'all, as the church, you get to go and remind them just how wise your God is. So you go, wow, that's very humbling that I get to be a display of God's wisdom. You know when you walk through the mall and there's display cases in the stores showing you like what you should want to buy in that store and what they have to offer you? So you go, mm, I want to go in there. That's what my life should be, is a display case of God's grace and wisdom. So that when people walk by, they either see the grace and wisdom of God and hate it, or they go, I think I want to go in that store and check out what that person's, you know, um, modeling. I, I want to know more about this God that they're seemingly following. I want, to, I want to know more. It should be us. Display cases of his wisdom. That's what God has made us to be. That's why we are... Uh, we have this crazy, valuable treasure in earthen vessels, right? In these fragile bodies, we house uh, the incredible wisdom and grace and beauty of God, His Spirit. So this was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized or accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. For those of you that are like narrative nerds and you love seeing things come full circle and you love seeing, you know, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, different things tied up, and you're like, oh my gosh, they brought that back into play. You'll love reading the Bible, because this is exactly what God does throughout history. There, there's, a, there's a few um, untied ends that when Jesus comes, get fully tied up, and you're like, I remember when the serpent exercised power and authority over the, over the image bearers of God, and then now we're doing that in 1 Corinthians or Romans 16 and, and now we're with Christ. We're above and wow, this is incredible. God, God, you tied up those loose ends. Great job. And God's going, yep, always planned to. Timing is everything though. Timing is everything. When God does things, not just how, not just what, but when matters. It says that the fullness of time Christ came. So now that this eternal purpose has been realized in Christ, who happens to be our Lord, which is really cool. Like the victories won. In Jesus, we have boldness and we have access. Where? Boldness to do what? Access into where? And we have confidence through our faith in Him. Confidence to do what? What does my faith have to do with this? Your faith in Jesus gives you reason and confidence to access the throne of God with boldness. The boldness 
of a believer comes from their faith in Jesus, not their performance, not how holy they've been, not how long they've been resisting a certain sin. My confidence to come before God stems from knowing what Jesus has done for me, not what I've done for him. So this boldness, this confidence is through our faith in Jesus. So Paul says, I'm asking you, don't lose heart. Like I just told you, we as the church are the display case of God's wisdom, his weapon of righteousness to dispel darkness from his world. We're the ones coming against the enemy and his demons, displaying that aspect of God's wisdom that was hidden for ages. We get to be that. Like we've been entrusted the grace to go and share this good news with others the way God has called us to. We've been entrusted by God to value and manage his grace well and to reveal that hidden wisdom of God through revelation to the world. So don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Remember, Paul started chapter 3 by saying, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus for your benefit. Then he goes into all the cool things that revolve around this mystery. You go, why is Paul in prison? Because he was sharing this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he was put in prison for it. And now the church is tempted to grow, you know, uh, timid and like weak and shy and embarrassed. And let's not talk about Christ then, because Paul got in prison and Paul's going, no, 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 don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. This is your glory. This is for your benefit. This should strengthen you and remind you the gospel that you hold to. Now we get to verse 14. And Paul transitions, weirdly enough, into prayer. And he goes, don't lose heart. Don't grow discouraged because of what I'm suffering. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He's going, not only am I going to tell you not to grow discouraged, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray and bow my knees before the Father, which goes perfectly in line with what he just said. We have boldness and access to the throne of God through our faith in Jesus. Then he goes, by the way, I bow my knees before the Father and I take advantage of that access to his presence and I get to his throne. My Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, I used to read this and go, oh, every person that exists is an image bearer of God. Now, that's true, but that's not what's being said here. The family in heaven and on earth is just the family of the saints, right? The family in heaven, family on earth, are those who have faith in the God of Israel and trust in him for salvation and righteousness. That's, that's the family in heaven on earth. And we in Christ who have taken refuge through our faith, we have, inherit, bear the name of God. We bear the name of Jesus. He's extended to us his name so that we would go on and represent him and bear his name well. Which brings us back to the original purpose of Israel. God says, don't take my name in vain. It's not talking about, don't use God's name as a cuss word. It's not, if you want to take it that way, that's fine. The point is, don't dishonorably represent me when you bear my name like your last name you carry that and it's a reflection of your parents so where you go you have the opportunity to enhance their reputation as your parents or to smear their name through the mud through your you know bad decisions 
Same with us. Do you bear God's name well? You've inherited it. You bear it no matter what. Do you represent his name well? And Paul's going, I bow my knees before my father whose name I've inherited. That according to the riches of his glory. Now watch. This is the measuring stick right here. This is the standard. According to the riches of his glory. There's a lot of riches going on in Ephesians. I think the point is we are very rich because our father is very rich. He's enriched us. So according to the riches of his glory, what's he going to do? Well, I pray that God would grant you to be strengthened with power. And you go, cool, I need power. Well, that power comes through his spirit, not by your own efforts, not by straining, not by training, not by going to you know, the gym every three months. It comes through his spirit. This is spiritual strength Paul is praying for. It's not any kind of strength that you and I can manufacture on our own or you know, find without God. He gives it to us through His Spirit. I don't, as a believer, you should have experienced this by now, but there are moments in life where a, a kind of strength comes over you that you cannot explain. Whether that strength looks like confidence, whether that strength looks like the ability to deal with confrontation and not lose your temper, whether that strength looks like the ability to re resist temptation after weeks of giving in, whether that strength looks like breaking an addiction finally, whether that strength looks like, you know, looking your kid in the face and choosing not to lose your temper. You know, there is a kind of spiritual strength that comes over people, that fills people who trust in Christ. And Paul's saying, I'm praying that our God would grant you that strength and power through His Spirit. Okay? In your inner being. There's a spiritual inner strength that revolves around the heart and the soul that no amount of material, earthly, worldly methods could accomplish. You just can't get there. What God gives by His Spirit, no creature could arrive at on their own. After years and centuries of training and, and meditating, and mm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to astral plane to another realm, you'll never get the spiritual strength God gives for free. And it's in your inner being. And you go, Paul, what is this strength primarily for? When you ask God for power, and you go, Lord, give the Ephesian church power, What's the power for? What is it going to accomplish? What's the purpose? Here's how Paul continues. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that dwelling doesn't seem to be this one-time filling of God where he enters into a person and recreates them. He fills them with his spirit. This is talking about the progressive abiding where Jesus takes over more and more of the person that I am, not where I'm mindlessly a puppet and I'm, oh, I'm in a trance, but where I give myself over to the rulership and the authority of Jesus to do with me as he pleases. This Christ dwelling in the hearts through faith, he's going to explain, okay? So he goes, here's what I mean by Jesus dwelling in your hearts through faith. I'm not talking about that one-time moment that happens at, when you get saved. I'm talking about that you 
being rooted like a tree and grounded like you got when you were a kid, you get grounded. Grounded in love may have strength. Here's where the strength comes into play. Here's where the strength comes into play. I pray that you would have strength to comprehend. So apparently this is strength to understand or comprehend something with all the saints. This is not just an isolated, I just hope you, Tony, have the strength to understand this. He's going, I hope you all, with the rest of God's people, you as the church collectively have the strength to comprehend every dimension, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, every dimension of the love of Christ. I pray that you would know the love of Christ. So Paul goes from talking about how beautiful this mystery is, how he's been entrusted to preach this mystery, how this mystery has rocked his life, how this mystery was hidden. Now he goes, I'm praying for y'all, man. I'm praying that God would grant you strength to comprehend every dimension of his love. And that through that, you would be rooted and grounded in that love to be more like Christ. More like Christ. So watch. I want you guys to get this. This is the connection Paul is making. To know the love of Christ is not accomplished by worldly methods, human methods, uh, fleshly methods. You name your methods. There's one primary way through which a person can actually know the love of Christ. Okay? To know the love of Christ requires the spiritual strength of the Spirit, which leads to comprehension and understanding. You don't know the love of Christ through your own straining or manufacturing the ability to get there. You don't get there through humanistic methods. You get there through the Spirit of God strengthening you to understand how deep, how wide, how high, how vast the love of Jesus is. And Paul is praying that you and I wouldn't just understand it, but that our lives would be, would be grounded in that but that our lives would be solidified in that. Like, if, the, if God's love is cement, I want to be as, I want to be permanently cemented in that. I want to be permanently locked in the love of God because apparently that is what brings growth. You don't grow up until your roots grow deep. And for your roots to grow deep, you and I have to pursue a deeper understanding of God's love for us, which is displayed through the mystery. That's why Paul brings us here. He goes, the mystery primarily is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's the revelation of God's love. That's what the mystery of the gospel is. It's the revelation of the love of God. And yes, along the way, you figure out I'm a sinner and there's consequences and I'm separated and I don't want that and I want God. And the love of God is revealed through that. But watch, look at how Paul describes the love of Christ. He says, I pray that you would have strength to know the love of Christ, which, by the way, surpasses knowledge. Surpasses knowledge. So Paul's going, I really want you guys to know something that you can't know. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. 
The love of God is inexhaustible. It's bottomless. Incomprehensible. It doesn't mean you can't know any dimension of it. It just means you can't fully understand the depths of God's love. What I can do is know His love better each day, which leads me closer and closer and closer to a deep, deep, deep understanding. And through that, I'm filled with the fullness of God. That's what he says here. When you know the love of Christ, that your own human brain cannot comprehend without the strength of God's Spirit, when you know the love of Christ, which is inexhaustible and infinitely deep, okay, you are filled with the fullness of God. You are filled with the fullness of God. So we talk about the fullness and being filled with the Spirit of God. I'll tell you what being filled with God's fullness looks like. It looks like knowing God's love and displaying that love to others and living in that love for other people and living in that love for God. We, we, we often make this phrase so mystical, right? I'm just, you know, operating in the fullness of God. I'm, I'm just filled with the fullness today. If you're not deepening in your understanding of God's love and then giving that love to others, you're not being filled with the fullness of God. Apparently, the fullness of God is his love for humanity. Now, I'm not restricting God to one attribute. I'm not limiting God to one dimension of who he is. But his love seems to encapsulate like the fullness of what he wants to understand about him. You see his mercy through love. You see his grace through love. You see his justice through love. You see his power through love. You see his wisdom through love. You see his patience and kindness and long-suffering through love. So the fullness of God is available to us as we know his love deeper and as my life is just driven deeper into that love. That's apparently what Paul knows the church desperately needs. We don't need another sermon. We don't need another series. We don't need to go to college for 10 years. Now, God will use those things. What I need most, that he'll use those things to accomplish, what I need most is to know the love of Christ. When I know the love of Christ, not only do I operate in the fullness of God, not only am I filled with the fullness of God throughout my day, but I begin to be stronger and rooted and grounded in that love so that my life becomes more stable and steadfast and I become more like Christ. You want to be more like Christ? You want to be a more faithful servant? You want to advance his kingdom? You want to play your role in the church? Pursue a knowledge of God's love. Sit there and meditate on what he has done for you or all of humanity or throughout the narrative of scripture. Think of all that God has done, all he, that he will do that displays his love and think on that. When you open the scriptures, go, man, I just want to see the love of God. I want to know him better. And apparently that's where maturity takes place. Maturity and growth and progress that you want, it comes from knowing his love better. And that might be too simple for some of you that are really intellectual. I wish I could change it. In fact, no, I don't. I'm glad that the love of God 
is what drives every other area of my life. I'm glad that knowing his love will create maturity in me. I'm glad knowing his love will result in progress in my life and transformation and make me a better person to the people around me. I'm glad that his love will actually propel me into the calling he has for me and bring the gifts that I have to life. I'm glad that the love of Christ is the focus of this relationship and not an amount of service, not a to-do list, not an amount of responsibilities you got to fulfill. I'm glad that the love of God drives every single dimension of my life. You want to be a better mom? You want to be a better husband? You want to be a better boyfriend? You want to be a better, you know, teacher and, and brother and, and sibling? What do you want to be a better version of? You become a better version of those things when you embody the love of God more. And you don't embody His love without knowing His love. In His Word, in prayer, in community, through meditating on what He's done, now to him who is able to do, here's the verse that gets quoted out of context quite a bit. Okay, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20. People go, oh yes, anything I imagine, you'll do better. Anything I can conceive of, you'll do better. Mm-mm-mm. Let's read Ephesians 3 in context, okay? Verse 20 says, now... To God be glory in the church. To God, who by the way is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Some versions add or imagine. Your imagination can't touch what God's power can accomplish. Your dreams, your vision, your goals, your ambitions, your, your hopes, your vision board. That can't touch the surface of what God can actually do with His power through your life. My small, limited imagination is still far beneath, far beneath what God's power is capable of. So, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Now, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul breaks out in praise. He goes, oh, to Him be the glory. In the church, let the church bring Him glory. Let our submission to Christ bring Him glory. Let us existing and breathing His air bring Him glory. Let our collection you know, collective communities across the planet bring Him glory. Why do you think the church exists? To bring Him glory, to glorify His name, to make much of Him. And for those of you that hate that, I, it bothers me that you hate that. It bothers me that you're not enamored and captivated by the goodness of God so much that you just want to bring Him glory. That bothers me. But let's just read this. What do you think Paul has in mind here? Let's just talk, okay? Let's talk real quick. He goes, I pray that you would know the love of Christ, that you'd be rooted and grounded in that, that, man, you'd be filled with the fullness of God. Now, by the way, guys, God can do, he will do beyond what we ask, think, or imagine. Isn't that great? That seems kind of random to me, that Paul would randomly insert that and pretty much say, guys, God can do anything, right? That seems random. So what we have to ask is, hey, Paul, when you say God can do far more 
than I can think or imagine or comprehend or, or even know to ask for. When you say that, is there anything you have in mind? Is there anything you have in mind in particular? And Paul would say, well, yeah. It's what I've been talking about the last, what, chapter? The mystery of Christ, to know that mystery, to know the love of Christ. Didn't Paul say that it takes spiritual power, strength, like a force outside of this world? Doesn't it take spiritual strength to understand the love of God? Didn't he say that? Yeah, he did. So when he says, oh, God is able to do above and beyond what we ask, think, or imagine, what do you think he has in mind for God to do that is even above our expectations of what God can do? Well, it's to root us, ground us in his love. It's that we would know the love of Christ. It's for God to reveal his love to us and the mystery. Okay, so when we read, God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask, think, or imagine, according to the power at work within us, there's something in particular Paul is emphasizing. It's, he's saying this, look, guys, when you ask God to know his love, your expectations of what God will do are still beneath what he's actually going to do. You can't even accurately anticipate how God's going to answer your prayers. When you go, Lord, I want to know your love. I want to be rooted and grounded in your love. I want to be stronger and filled with the fullness. I want to know the mystery. Paul's going, those are great requests. And you have expectations attached to those requests. Understand that God's power is going to deliver to you a better version of what you're even asking for. You're going, I want to know your love. And you have an idea of what that looks like. But God's not going to give you according to your limited imagination and comprehension. God's going to give you and do for you above and beyond your imagination because your imagination isn't the standard of God's decisions or the standard of, of, of what God can do, okay? God's power is the standard that measures what God can do. Not your imagination, not your comprehension, not even your requests and expectations. And when we are filled with the fullness of God and we know his love better, there's glory God gets in the church. That God is glorified by a church that demonstrates his love because they know his love and they seek to know his love. So apparently that's the fullness to go after is the love of Christ, which is an element of the mystery of God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's a revelation of his love. And what we need to pray for, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, like this little section right here is something you and I should be praying for. Lord, deepen my understanding of your love. I pray this, root me, ground me in your love so that I can be filled with all the fullness you have for me. I want to be filled with God to whatever degree he decides, not even the degree that I can imagine or or expect for. When you say, fill me, Lord, you have an idea of what that looks like. And God's power isn't just capable of doing more than what you ask. Like, he will. God's not going to answer your requests according to the limitations of your expectations. He's going to go beyond that. He will.
He will. So here's what we're going to do, guys. In about seven minutes, I don't know what your time is or what time zone you are in. Add seven minutes to the clock. Okay, set a timer, set an alarm. Ask your mom, hey, in seven minutes, come get me. Because in seven minutes, we're going to go into our Zoom prayer room and we're going to pray with one another. We're going to talk with each other. We're going to process this and ask some questions and fellowship. So if you guys want some fellowship, you guys want some quality community and some strong encouragement and you have prayer requests, the, the Zoom link is in my TikTok profile. Okay, So click my profile, click my name. You'll find yourself on my profile. There's a link on my profile. Just click it. Okay, um, And then you'll see the Zoom link. The password is Jesus. The password is Jesus. Okay. And for those of you that are on YouTube, Facebook, it's in the description below. Okay, you'll see this video. There's a, there's a description below this video, and you'll see the Zoom link. Click that in six minutes now. The password is Jesus. And then you guys can check out everything about this ministry at AboveReproachMinistry.com, where our YouTube channel is, our podcast. You can find my book, our free Bible study program, all the videos I've done, um, free resources. If you want to order a Bible, if you want to give to this ministry, if you want to join our Discord, hit me up on Instagram. All these things are on my website, linked in the description below, and um, as well as on TikTok in my profile. All right. So that's it for today. Get ready for the Zoom call. Again, Zoom link in my profile in the description below. Password is Jesus. And if you're watching this later in the future on YouTube, I apologize. You missed it. But next time, join us. All right, guys. I'll see you guys in about six minutes.